Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Chewing the Gristle, a podcast of doom and destruction. I'm your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, or the Gristle Man, if you will. We're going to have extemporaneous conversations with a variety of very powerful musical friends. We're going to converse about life, liberty, and the pursuit of musical savagery. Is that wrong? I don't think so. So tune in. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of beautiful Louisville, Colorado. Fishman Transducers of the majestic and powerful community known as Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? Prepare for a good old gristle chewing with a Telecaster warrior hailing originally from the wilds of Canada. He swooped down into California, worked his way to Nashville, and started scalding brains with his Telecaster mastery. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about the one, the only, Red Volkert. Come. Well, Red, one of the, the fascinating things about doing these interviews with folks is I, I just like hearing the whole journey. Because, you know, as musicians, we know that no road is ever the same for anybody. You got to figure out a way to, you know, make a living while still doing the music you love. And I just find it absolutely fascinating talking to folks and, and finding out about their uh, their journey and where they're ended up and, and how they're feeling at this point in time and all that other kind of stuff. And so now you're you're out in Virginia. And um, why don't you talk us through, where, start wherever you want, but let, maybe just let's, let's begin with, you know, why did you decide after so many years of, you know, really being um, a, a potentate, if you will, of the Austin music scene and your residency at the uh, Continental Club and just being really heavily identified with the live music scene down in Austin that you said, you know what, I think I'm, I think I'm ready for something new. I could certainly relate to it, but let's, uh, let's start there and, and, and go, go back or forward or sideways from there. Well, uh, that's exactly it right there. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. You just, you had had it. (laughs) No, I mean, uh, I have enjoyed the hell out of it. It's been wonderful, all kinds of great everything. And, you know, met the best players. They they all come through Austin to play on tour. Uh, So I always got to meet a lot of people. But I did the same thing in Nashville for 11 years prior to that. Right. And then uh, I was there 11 years. Then I moved to Austin. I was there 20 years. And uh, doing a house gig at the Continental on Saturdays with my band and Sunday with a band called Hay Bale. And did both of those gigs uh, for 20 years, other than subbing out to go on the road and do different things like the guitar show, whatever, the festivals and things. But uh, the reason for moving is just, uh, I guess, being old and tired and sick of the club thing. And and I've always been a like yourself. I'm a I'm a whore with a guitar is what it comes down to. I just can't take no uh, or say no for an answer. Somebody says it calls at eight thirty and says, "Hey, we start at midnight. You want in? It's forty bucks." I was always the guy to go. Yeah, I'm not doing nothing. I'll take it. You know, and, yeah. and I'm going to learn from it. If not, I'll I'll learn what not to do next time or something. You know, I'm going to yeah, be absolutely. all good and it's music and hopefully uh, be wonderful. You know, so I was always always have been that kind of guy, and I did that for eleven years in Nashville, just seven nights a week, two and three shifts a day downtown on Broadway. And I had a regular uh, gig in Printer's Alley for about six years. I did uh, 
there I played at a place called Skull's Rainbow Room, was a, a bar, a, a nightclub. Yeah. And uh, it was a uh, 10.15 till to quarter to three every night. Wow. There. So prior to that, I would do like a, an 11 to two, doing a duo with somebody in the, in the afternoon, the morning lunch thing, uh, a lot of times during the week. And then I would play uh, two to six uh, across the street somewhere on Broadway. It was all close together. So you just grab your guitar and amp, haul across the street and plug in and go and, you know, quick, either no pedals or two of them. And that's all you need. And right. At that time, it just was that kind of those sort of gigs. So do that till uh, six to ten. That give me fifteen minutes to run up the streets of the alley and and start that ten fifteen gig. And I left an amp there because we were the only band there all the time every night. So it was closed all day, and and uh, so I could leave an amp on a chair on the on the stage uh, year round there for a few years. And so I did that, and then the same when I moved moved to Austin. Of course, at first I couldn't find any work. Uh, it seemed weird. I mean, I thought, oh, great music town, and and I was tired of the time of uh, of Nashville's Nashville. You know, yeah, I understand. Yep, stick there musically, and it's you know just uh, kind of eighties rock bands with cowboy hats playing downtown, and and just <laughs> I didn't want any of that sort of stuff anymore. And getting older and. The guy I'll move to Texas. At least it's still got some Western swing and old country guys. And if it dies its last breath, it'll probably be over there in Texas. And maybe I could be a, at least watch it die. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I moved there kind of for that reason. And then uh, when I first got there, I couldn't find any gigs. And, and uh, but it wasn't you know that there wasn't any. Of course, there's like 200 music things going on in that town all the time or there was sure. when I moved there in, in uh, 2000. And uh, so I would go to a bunch of clubs and, you know, sit in a little bit and give my card out. And luckily two band leaders were nice enough and said, uh, I know who you are. I like your plan, blah, blah, but I'm uh, probably not going to call you. I'm like, must've heard about me ahead of time. Or something, <laughs> you know? So, I said, well, what, what's the deal? And, you know, one of the guys said, well, like guitar player that I have in my band now has been with me for 10 years. And when he takes off three times a year, I get the guy before him that played for 12 years with me before that. Uh-huh. So, no offense. I'm going to call my buddy because he's still my friend. We left, he left on good terms and, you know, which is kind of rare in a band, but I guess right. in <laughs> like that, that's okay. So he would call that guy. So he said, I probably won't call you because it's probably not going to come open for a gig ever, you know? And I was like, Ooh, well, thanks. You know? And then then, uh, another guy, almost the same thing happened. So I was like, okay, I just moved here. (laughs) I can't find a gig. What am I going to do? And, and, uh, but well, I'll go around town and see if I can find me some young hot rod singer that, you know, sings old school kind of stuff that I like. And, and we'll go from there. I'll put a band around them and, I get to step all over his singing and overplay like crazy and just have a blast, you know, but it's so secretly my, my band, but we'll have this other guy's name. So I went sniffing around. I checked a bunch of clubs. And at the time, I guess the good ones were out of town because I heard a bunch of singers and I thought, man, I could sing that bad. So I just said, the hell with it. I just started my own trio. And then of course, 
once I started that, every bass player and drummer in town, hey, do I, need, I need a Monday. I got Monday's open or a Tuesday open or whatever. And so I got to meet a whole bunch of players and kind of cultivate the thing there, the club thing. And, and uh, you know, it wound up with a house gig at the Continental. So that way it worked out good to, uh, I started out as a trio and then I got a four piece, different, different fourth piece people once in a while. Of course, they'd go on the road and, leave for a year or whatever so i'd get somebody else and that kind of thing and and it was awesome it was fantastic but like i said i also was the guy to never turn nothing down because being a bum guitar player you think you know what if nobody calls you're out of work you're dead and that's right. the end of it so if somebody calls you always say yeah because you you're afraid that the well's going to run dry so to speak and uh, so i did that in town as well took everything and anything from a pool party to a wedding to, you know, somebody's getting their horse reshod. Well, so you have a, a duo playing there. Let's do it. You know, that kind of thing. And so I've, I've done that for 20 years there and, and, and with traveling and with different people and stuff as well. But, uh, so I just kind of got burned out on the seven nights a week, uh, sure. two, three shifts a day. And I'm a sap kind of guy that just can't say no. So, uh, a couple of years ago, I thought, nah, this is kind of getting old and I'm kind of uh, wanting to be, I don't know what you call it, cheeky, I guess, somewhat, where you go, I don't want to play that gig because I played it 50,000 times and it still pays sure. the same and ugh, right. you know, line dancers in the way and just uh, that kind of stuff. So I finally got to that point and I thought, you know, I need to get out of it out of that side of the of the thing i could still travel on the road go on the road do all of that sure if i move somewhere else and uh so that was my goal so we decided to move and uh we were looking in new mexico a lot for a couple of years and of course the more we looked the higher the prices got and sure and the less water they got out there and right like, well, we got horses and donkeys so they need water and hay and there's you know, in this in the central southern part of the state, there's no grass hardly because it's desert, and so you're right. buying hay year round, and there's water restrictions like crazy. Uh, so, because they'll have like a whole, you know, ten houses, fifteen properties off of one aquifer that's feeding that whole area, so everything's limited, and of course, it never rains out there. So, right. So that kind of ruled that out, and and I had come and, out. And there's and there's a lot of alien activity out there as well, if we're honest. Well, that's what drew me. <laughs> I figured they must collect guitars too. Absolutely. You know, who wouldn't? <laughs> but yeah, so kind of that was a wash. So I'd been out here in Virginia and played. You know, years ago I'd played out in Virginia with a fellow that was from Martinsville. And when I was first came to Nashville, we played at Stagecoach, a guy named Clinton Gregory who's a fiddle player. Ah. And he had a record deal and traveled around. Of course, at the time, he wasn't known or at all. So all of his work was in Virginia. And we played lots in Virginia. And uh, I would say, I guess it would have been mm, around 92 or something like that. So I remembered it was just beautiful and kind of wrote it off, forgot about it. And then I had a festival out here. This uh, fellow Wayne Henderson builds unbelievable acoustic guitars, and and he has a guitar flat picking contest and uh, music festival, and donates all the money to the Appalachian or Appalachian they say out here uh, <laughs> kids uh, music 
So they all that money buys uh, fiddles and dulcimers and guitars and whatever for kids in school. If the kids can't afford it, they give it to them. If they can pay for it, they pay for it kind of thing. And it promotes the music in schools and stuff like that. So wonderful cause. Anyway, I came and played that festival middle of nowhere in the mountains and, and uh, just gorgeous. So I was like, ooh, sent a bunch of pictures and a video to my wife. Said, we need to sniff around out here. Yeah, yeah. We took a week and rented a car and drove everywhere, North Carolina and most of Virginia and kind of Northeast Tennessee and uh, looked around and she liked the Galax the best. So I said, well, that'll work for me. The little town with 7,000 people, no bars, no bands, nothing. So I figured that'll end that uh, eight o'clock call. Hey, can you play tonight? <laughs> so that was my goal to do that. Then I could kind of cut that part out of the game and still travel on the road and do some stuff. And then sure. uh, moved here and, uh, December ended December first part of January, and then the uh, plague hit in March. Yes. So that was it. So all the road work dried up and was gone. So the whole thing I wanted out. I guess I really got out of it now. Yeah, which I'm okay with. You know, I I've sure enjoyed the break from uh, you know a playing clubs all the time and and in a thousand bands and it's been like I say I'm not complaining but right getting weary of it I guess you'd call it politely and then uh thought I could travel on the road but now that's gone so I'm ah, I'm okay I teach some Skype lessons and a couple guys locally here and uh just doing it and loving it out here and of course it's beautiful country and the yeah it's beautiful out there so nice so whereabouts great. are you out there in Virginia so you're right in the mountains yeah, it's a little town called Galax, Virginia, and it's uh, they're famous for a fiddle contest they've had for 80-something years. Ah. And there's a lot of the, you know, old-time music. Of course, they claim to fame as Bristol, Tennessee for old country music, Carter Family and Jimmy Rogers and all that stuff we first right. recorded there. So a bunch of that music came from this area, kind of the southwest corner of the state. And... Uh, so it's 7,000 people, a little tiny town. We got a Walmart and uh, a Lowe's, no Home Depot, so there's no competition. Ah. <laughs> but it's awesome. We got a 25-acre spot with a nice big house and a barn and a pole barn. And, you know, we got uh, animals all over the place and lots of critters floating around. We get every morning I see uh, five deer in the backyard and three in the front. And uh, through the day we'll see – 13, 14 female turkeys come in a whole gaggle, I guess they'd be, yeah. traveling across the, the field, you know, through the backyard and uh, through a couple of the pastures. They do it every day, and it's just awesome. Fantastic. Peaceful. Oh, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Now, how far are you from, like, uh, what's the nearest big city? If well, to me, a big city would be Mount Airy, where Andy Griffith was from. He's <laughs> 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 probably 12,000. No, I'd say uh, Winston-Salem would be the nearest uh, bigger airport city. Okay, so that's where you uh, fly in and out of probably? Yeah, and it's a, like an hour and 20 minutes at the most. Oh, that's not 15. bad. That's and then Roanoke is kind of north, uh, I guess it would be northeast of me, and it's about 45 minutes from here. And it's a, there's a bunch of little towns kind of, you know, suburbs. They were towns. Now they're all one big kind of blob of Roanoke, Christiansburg, and Blacksburg. They're all universities there, Virginia Tech, all that stuff, you know. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Lots going on there. But like I say, there that's an hour, probably an hour, hour and 10, 15 minutes. So it's just far enough that I'm not going to go drive a gig and, you know, spend three hours driving to play a little gig in a, in a bar till two or three in the morning, you know? Right. So, so there's probably not going to be a lot of gigging in that area, but that's, that's fine because that's what you, that's what you wanted to escape from. And I can dig it. So whatever road work comes down the the pike, well, of course there's none for anybody at this particular point in time. So you might as well be in a beautiful place. <laughs> yeah. And, and whole, there's a whole bunch of pluses too, that just I've always lived in a city, of course, playing music, you kind of got to, to stay in the game and, and, uh, otherwise out of sight out of mind right so uh but also the other side of that coin what wanted me wanting me to move was uh you know property taxes traffic smog sure yeah austin's getting the population i forgot what the statistic is but it's just something insane about the the people, the amount of people moving there, and the increased amount of drivers monthly. I heard this, 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 uh, the statistic, and I was just, I yeah. couldn't believe it. So it's like the infrastructure can't handle how many people are moving there. I can imagine that the city has changed even from the time that I mean, I, I'm good buddies with Roscoe Beck, and he tells me how it's t- changed drastically from you know him growing up there and so on and so forth. But I would imagine oh, just from sure. the year 2000, it has changed uh, immeasurably. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a lot of, like you say, it's overgrown and it's, you know, they're not set up for it. And, of course, with that, more people comes, you know, more crime, more homeless, right. more traffic, more, it was just all kinds of stuff, you know. And, and uh, so, which all of those things make it a lot less fun to drive into town to play kind of thing and, and or live there and play all the time, you know. Well, I think it's fascinating when you mentioned that, you know, you I think people that aren't musicians, but maybe are, you know, are fans or maybe weekend warriors or something like that would think, oh, a guy like Red moves down to Austin, everyone's going to hire him in a second. And, and they, and they kind of miss that whole thing of that no matter who you are, it's still the people that are hiring people. It's, it's about who, you know, and people being friends. And that's, and that's really what it all comes down to. And the best thing you can do is if you want any kind of uh, freedom, even though it's, it's, it, it, you know, it's harder, but you, you do it on your own and you're not dependent on everybody. And I think it's funny you're looking for another singer because I love the way you sing. I love your voice. I think that, you know, what a lot of people, you know, I, I've wrestled with that for years. You know, I sing a certain way and I'm good at, at sounding certain ways, but you're always thinking, oh, I'm going to find the ringer. You know what I mean? I'm going to get right. the ringer who's going to be the person out front, but it never works out because. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you find a guy that sings good, you can't put up with him. Exactly. Exactly. Some, he's got something, something real bad wrong, you know? Right. <laughs> Fascinating. But yeah, it's weird how that works. That you think, you know, I don't think of myself as that, but other people that like yourself or whoever, you think, man, that guy must never be out of work, you know? And you look around and I think now being an old part and knowing a bunch of great old players through the years, it seemed like the better ones either had to do their own thing or had less work because they played so good and had their own style. They didn't sound like the guy on the record. So most of the non-hearing music people would never hire that guy because he doesn't sound like something they're familiar with. 
Exactly. So that, the better the player, that kind of guy gets knocked out of work just by practicing too much, I guess, you know, and, right. and being, a, <laughs> being a better player and, you know, getting to sit together and, you know, and, and it's not that people don't want to hear it, but they kind of don't because they want to hear something that's simpler and more familiar to their ears. And so, so many, like you say, weekend kind of bands or warrior bands, if you can sound just like the record, then boy, they, they all want you for that. Right. Exactly. But anybody that plays and, practices too much goes i already played that thirty thousand times i'm tired of that solo you know for that song so can i try something different you know nah we'd rather you didn't so you end up going okay i guess i gotta start my own band or take up welding or something you know (laughs) well that that's an interesting point because i was going to ask you when you were gigging down in 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 nashville with just you know Doing the uh, the Don Kelly thing, or just kind of as you said, your, the gig you had later on, Printer's Alley. So you're you're playing nonstop. How much of that was you had the freedom to kind of suss out new things, and were you kind of like, oh, on this gig, I can I can try messing with this, or was it more about uh, refinement? Not that those two aren't you know musically musically exclusive, but there's. You know what I mean? Were there things where you could stretch out and try new things, or was it more about how do I fit into this thing, kind of what we were talking about just a few seconds ago, fitting into the gig so that people understand that there's a sameness? You know what I mean? Well, to me, kind of that's all tied together. I mean, you take a gig because hopefully you like it because of the music and the people in that group, and and, uh, so you take it for that, and while you're in it, of course, you probably chose it because they're the kind to let you get away with trying new things and experimenting right. a little bit, which right. to me, Don Kelly is the, was the best band leader on the planet ever because whoever he had, the more the guy played and overplayed and did a bunch of goofy shit that no one's ever heard of, the more he lit up and went, go again, go again. And he would make <laughs> you, keep, you know, until you ran out, you started repeating yourself, then he would start singing again. So, but he did that every day, every song, all the time. So that was like a marathon learning, learning how to run properly and get the hang of that and, and you know, how to pace yourself through the, through a five hour gig and that kind of thing. And then I would, you know, do some other, a bunch of other different band things that were more, if you did a showcase with somebody while well, they wanted just like the record, right. I can't do that, but boy, it's sure going to be a challenge to try. So I would try and do that and do my best at that. And then I would have my own little band that just played instrumentals. Nobody is allowed to sing. And, uh, or if we did, you only get to sing the turnaround, you know, cause that's, right. that's all we need. Right. <laughs> and then that, those were more freedom for goofing off on the guitar and, and trying to say, okay, I'm going to play five choruses in, in this instrumental, I'll put the head in the front, play five, and then put the head on the back to hopefully redeem myself. And those five <laughs> solos, I always looked at that as, okay, I can either play like five different guys. You know, what would Hank Garland do? What would Jimmy Bryant do? What would right. Greg Cock do? You know, all this and play like all these people for those solos, just for the, the fun and the excitement of trying to do that and tie that styles together, but still be, you know, faithful to each person's way of playing or style. So to me, that was a huge learning a uh, wonderful thing to, to go through to do that. And so by, by playing seven nights a week in, in five bands a week, 
I got to cover all of those kind of learning, uh, stretch out sort of exercise things as a player and get to learn from the other players, uh, learn when to shut up, what not to do, uh, when to play rhythm, which most guys don't do or know how, you know, just on and on. There's a bunch of that kind of stuff. So Nashville, I really, really got into learning there more about how to fit in a band, how to play with other players. You're set up and there's a steel player beside you. Don't ever play a steel lick. They'll want to shoot you. That's nice. just how it is. You know, <laughs> of course, a lot of young guitar players go, oh, they're just jealous because I sound just like them. Ah. No, you don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you let things a guy learns as you go along. And, and to me, it was a wonderful, wonderful I would never take it back learning process for me to do all of that. Well, let's talk um, about the fact that, so you're, you grew up in Canada. So you're uh, from Vancouver originally, correct? Yes. And then you went up to Edmonton. And and so I've always been astounded by the, there's some great musicians up in, in Canada. Oh Yeah. And and there's also a little bit more of an infrastructure from a from a governmental point of view to to provide some kind of a safety net. Uh, is is that is that true? From what I understand, in in some terms of they actually, um, as I said, provide some kind of a, a safety net for people that go into the arts. Is that true in terms of? Uh, I think ish? maybe if you're a painter or an artist of some kind, like a you know, the symphony or uh, a dancer, ballet dancer, those kind of people, but just a dumbass guitar player. Uh-uh. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. If you're, a, if you're a guitar player in a bar band, traveling in a band, there's no... Uh, you're on your own. Oh, totally. I mean, there's a few people that uh, the singers, like a singer star going to be kind of guy, could get a grant to, to back them for touring to promote okay. a new a new uh, record that came out or something like that that happens okay that's what i'm thinking know, of that. one in three thousand bands that happens to the rest are slamming it out and driving their broke cars to the gig a week at a time and gotcha like here it's the same old thing you know gotcha so then you decided you should go out to california uh Let's talk a little bit about that. What what was that like? Was there were you, were you thinking you were going to find some of the and maybe you did the old school, you know, Bakersfield folk and and just kind of the whole, you know, maybe even remnants of the you know Jimmy Bryan era of of musicians out there. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I always wanted to go to Nashville. Was like every country guitar player. Right. So, but my mom lives in Vancouver, so I thought I'm a I'd go there and say hi and bye to her in case I get killed on my way down there. I didn't know what I was getting into and sure. none of that. So, I mean, uh, I had a little four by four pickup and a buck knife and a amp and a guitar and that was it, you know? Right. And, uh, so I thought oh, I'm going to start on the West coast and work my way to Nashville. I'll just stop okay. in for a few days and see what's going on there. I heard about this LA place, you know, it's great country. So, you know, I'm going to go there and see what they do. Right. So I kind of worked my way down there, and, and uh, luckily it wor- worked out that way that I uh, came through the border, and then I, I got to uh, Chico, California, where a buddy of mine, a bass player, was staying, 
and he was shacked up with this gal, and but he had a road gig, so I stopped to say hi to him, spend the night, and he said, hey, I heard there's a gig in San Jose playing with this uh, Bobby Black, a steel guitar player that used to be in uh, Sleep at the Wheel a hundred years ago, and uh, Barbara Mandrell's band, a great guitar player, uh, or steel guitar player, and his brother Larry Black was a wonderful guitar player, and they had a bunch of 45s out in the 60s of kind of a Bryant West style of playing. So I was aware of his playing, of course, being a steel guitar fan too. So I heard about a gig, so I went down there and auditioned for the gig and, you know, lots of funny, goofy stuff to say how all that came around, all that anyway. So I did that gig and then uh, it kind of fizzed out and I was like, nah, it's getting old, six nights a week in the same club and the seventh night I had another gig in uh, San Jose that, for it was a Sunday nights and uh, it was all fun and good but it was like man a little bit of women trouble tired of the music and I'm gone so I head on down and I go to Santa Cruz I hook up with a gal there a bluegrass singer that liked western swing and so she did like you know bluegrass and stuff so we do Jimmy Martin tunes and I turn them into swing tunes just for fun so I did that for well, probably about eight, nine months. And then she got divorced, so she canceled a bunch of gigs and it kind of fizzed. And so I'll go to LA before I go to Nashville. Everything is on my steps to get down there eventually to go to, to Nashville because I want to see Leon Rhodes play and Buddy Emmons and all those guys live, you know, if I can see it. And right. It'd be great. So I stop in LA and I, uh, go to a couple of jam sessions. The guy says, you looking for work? I said, yeah, maybe. What, what do you got? He said, well, this bass player in town, he's looking for a guitar player. He's going to play six, seven nights a week if you want. I said, okay. So I went and auditioned in somebody's garage and got the gig. And, and I played that for about four years there thinking, oh, I'll get to Nashville. I'll get there and inch my way there. So I kind of did a West Coast thing there. And of course, while I lived there, it was a whole nother learning uh, experience thing as well in that there's so much music and so many kinds of different styles of great phenomenal players. I mean, when I first got there, I only, you know, got a few weekend gigs and I had a bunch of time off, but luckily I had a little soup can full of money, you know, to keep me afloat. Sure. And uh, I'd go out at night and check out the bands and stuff. And, you know, one night I'd see Mun Mundell Lowe playing, you know, in a, in a jazz club, you know, him and the Jack Shelton, the trumpet guy. And right. I'd watch that until I had a headache about three songs. Cause it was just too hard to soak in and what they were doing, you know? So I'd watch that and I'd go see them, uh, but at least once a week. And then Frank Gumbali was playing at some hoo hog jazzy fusiony club. And sure. I'd go watch him circle pick for a while. And then, uh, you know, then the Palomino Club had a whole bunch of goofy stuff there and good old country stuff, new country stuff. And they'd bring in big acts. Jerry Lewis would come over there and kick shit over. And it was just great. So then, uh, you know, blues bands, punk, rockabilly, big rockabilly scene. Oh, so yeah. I just loved everything because there was just so much music there. And uh, I just wanted to learn, learn, learn. So... You know, I've got to play in a bunch of little rockabilly situations, a bunch of old school country ones, some commercial country ones that were playing the the new music, you know, in the mid 80s, you know, whoever was popular, Bellamy Brothers or whatever, 
back then and just, just to do it, you know, and it's work and fun, get to meet other players and learn from them. And, and out there, I learned about the substitute thing where I'm in your band, but I'm allowed to sub out every night if I want. If somebody pays me $5 more and it's three miles closer to home, I can sub out and call a guy to fill in for me in your band and you can't get mad about it. It was like, right. what? I never <laughs> heard of that before. You don't even have to tell the leader. And I, so a couple of times I asked a couple of leaders, I said, have you ever had guys that you fired showed up because your guitar player sent them as a sub? They said, oh yeah. <laughs> like they were, they didn't pay them. And I was like, right. wow, this is a pretty level-headed bunch of folks out here. Right. You know? <laughs> so you get to sub for guys. So as a fill-in guy, and uh, so you meet a pile of players that way, a lot of band leaders. You play all kinds of different music, and not only the club scene, but there. There's so much Hollywood uh, movie everything. So there's pool parties all the time and, and private party functions and uh, – all kind of shindigs going on everywhere all the time, especially the weekends and stuff. And of course, most of it's outside because the weather is so great. Right. And, uh, so it was just awesome, you know, for me doing that. And then uh, during the day, if I wasn't playing, I'd hit every pawn shop and music store I could find and wheel and deal and hustle and, you know, go to hot rod shops and watch how they build stuff and just be a gomer, you know. It was awesome. I loved it. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. I'm interested in... So at this point, you're just like... Telecaster, chord amplifier type of guy. When when did that happen? When did you say the telly's my thing, and that's it? Well, I, I just never knew any different. I just always did it. You know, I mean, I got a '58 Esquire when I was uh, 12 or 13. Okay. And then I took a screwdriver and a hammer, and I put a Charlie Christian pickup out of a lap steel without the long magnets, just the like a P90ish kind of thing. Sure. Charlie Christian. And I carved a hole with a hammer and a, and a screwdriver and put in this Charlie Christian pickup, duct taped it in the bottom, rolled the duct tape into it. So I had a two-sided tape, stuck it in the bottom and wired it up, you know, with, <laughs> with matches and, you know, the, like any kid, you know. And, and that was it. That was my guitar. And then uh, back in Canada, then I was, I was like, man, it's great. And I, I had an old Stratocaster, a 58 Strat, and, that I'd gotten a pawn shop as a kid, you know, it was like 90 bucks. So why not? Right. For 350 bucks then. So, uh, I had a couple old guitars and I played lots of new ones sitting in with other guys. And it's like, I always liked the old ones. Right. So I started kind of collecting a little bit and learning about them from other nuts that like the same kind of thing. And there were several guys up there that were into it, you know, not a lot, but probably six or eight guys up there in my kind of Western part of Canada that were into that. So you'd talk on the phone or drive through town playing somewhere and hook up with half of them and learn a bunch of stuff that way. So through that, I got to kind of getting collecting and, and, you know, turning into a 
I guess, a bit of a retard about Telecasters because I, I was like, okay, Rosewood next, Maple next. Oh, they quit maping, making Maple next in 59. You know, and he learned all these things. And then so I would collect these guitars. And back then, they were from 150 to 250 bucks used in the, right. in the 70s. Right. So, which is still a lot of money when you don't make barely that for a whole week kind of thing. So, sure. but being a single young guy, it's like, I'd rather buy those than eat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I wheeled a deal and I wound up with a, like a no caster and a 53 telecaster and a 60, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so I just was eat up with the telecaster and of course pots would wear out after six, eight months of seven nights a week. And, and uh, so I'd have to fix them and I learned how to fix them and I really got into that. And then by then, DiMarzio pickups came out and Mighty Mike was the first company to make a replacement black guard, plastic pick guard. So you could make your 58 look like a 53 and blah, 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 all yeah, that, yeah. Stuff, you know, so I really got into that all the while just playing Telecasters. And I had a Les Paul, but I never played it. You know, and the 335, and never played it, but I had one because a lot of guys sure. were into them, you know, right. kind of thing. So uh, it was really, really, you know, caught up with just the telly without kind of knowing it because it was like, that. well, that's what I'm playing. That's what I use. And I never switch horses, even at the shore, never mind midstream. I just never did it, you know. Right. So, so when you're 12, are you what kind of music were you listening to? Were you into Telecaster players or that was the guitar that was available to you? What kind of stuff were you listening to? Did you grow up listening to? Well, my brother's a year older than me, so he had a little bit more paper out money. So he bought all the Grand Funk and Led Zeppelin and, and uh, Deep Purple records and that stuff. And I was like, yeah, I, I liked it. It was cool. And so just to try to fit in, you know, with their uh, crowd, you know, their guy, a bunch of guys and stuff, I would learn all that kind of stuff as well as I could at a young age, you know. But my parents really liked all kinds of music. So my mom had the 10 inch version of uh, two guitars, country style, Jimmy Bryant and Speedy West. Oh, okay. And she had a lot of 10 inch, I guess they're EPs now you call them, I guess. Right. And, uh, you know, there was a cardboard cover, just like a regular 12 inch album, but 10 inch. She had Les Paul and Mary Ford and Etta James and Aretha Franklin. And she loved all kind of stuff. And my dad, same thing. He loved Jimmy Reed and, B.B. King and Albert King and Freddie King and awesome. and Buck Owens. And just to me, at the time, it was like, that's what I heard. Uh, so I guess maybe through osmosis, I became a homo for that kind of stuff only. You for know, for so Rootsy, wanted, or the Rootsy path. Well, I didn't know at the time. I didn't know that's what they liked. So, uh, you know, I didn't know that there was other music out there as a kid. Right. You know, other than what my brother would come home, oh, you got to hear this. And he'd have like, you know, uh, in rock, deep purple, you deep know, purple. So, oh, yes. wow. So I listened to it and go, yeah, it's kind of scrambly stuff to me because I'm not hearing a steel guitar. And then the, he stops and the fiddle starts. And I'm more listening for that kind of, uh, I guess, regimented or organized kind of playing. Sure. You know, so to hear the rock stuff was great because lots of guitar, of course. But it was like, doesn't anybody else play in that band? You know, <laughs> organ guy, he just hangs on and that's the end of it. You know, so it's like I just looked at it like I don't have enough uh, 
a horse to play in that game. You know, <laughs> enough licks and stuff to say, I'd run out after two licks. So <laughs> like, yeah, it's cool. I like it, but I'm not smart enough to get it, I guess, you know. Where Buckaroo, I could play that, but somebody else would take over and, and I'd do it again at the end and I'm off the hook. Right. You know? <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so uh, thanks to my folks, I think they're, they're, for me, their choices were wonderful music. So I listened to that as a young guy. And then uh, all the kind of different kinds of music, which of course were several different instruments. And uh, my folks split up and I went with my dad when I was about 14. And uh, so he was a bit of a hustler. So he came home with this Esquire one day. Uh, that he'd won in a pool game. So huh. he comes home and he says, I, I got you good. I got you a really good guitar here. And I said, Oh, cause I had a harmony rocket up until then. And, and uh, I said, Oh, what is it? He says, it's just like the one Buck Owens played the Merle Haggard, same kind of guitar. I'm like, Oh, cool. He says, yeah, you, you know, you, you should be playing on that thing. You want to sound like those guys. Like you like that kind of music. I said, yeah, I love it. If that's what it is to make that sound, I'll, I'd like to have that. And then I could sound like those guys, you know, same as if I had a black Strat, I could sound like Richie Blackmore as a kid. Right, right, right. So I painted my 58 Strat black. <laughs> now, do you, still, do you still have those guitars or no? Oh, yeah, you bet. I got, I never get rid of nothing. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I left Canada. I stored all that stuff in a storage thing up there. Okay. So then when I came to the States, I started accumulating stuff in the States too. And then uh, several years later, I went back up there with and rented a trailer and brought it all back down here and wheeled and deal and horse traded some of it. But uh, I've still got most of the early stuff, you know, more Crazy. sentimental than anything. But so I got that, that Esquire and I had to pay for that with my paper out money and I know now that it was a, a learning thing from my dad, but he said, you can't take that thing anywhere and you can't uh, do anything with it until it's paid for. And I'm like, well, why are you selling it to me? You know, he's, well, you got to learn to pay for something. If you buy a new car, even though they may let you take it, you got to pay for it, but you're not getting this until it's paid for. Cause I don't know what you're going to do to it or let your friends wreck it for you. I don't know. Wow, how mean can you be? <laughs> you know? So I had pay my my paper out money every month until it was paid for. Then I could take it on a gig, playing in, you know playing the weekend bands by then, and uh, then I could take it on that. So of course I didn't have it maybe a year, and I cut the hole in the thing with the with the screwdriver and put the Gibson pickup because I thought, well, I got my Buck Owens all right here on the bridge. Right. If I put this Gibson pickup in there, then I could be Dickie Betts if I wanted to. Right. I practice hard enough, you know. So that's kind of how that came to be. And then and then from that time on, it was that guitar. And then everything else I wanted and bought was a Telecaster of some kind because it was just another variation of this great guitar that I had. You know? Right. That's an awesome yeah, story. Yeah, so, your, really so your dad got it in a pool game. That's a, that's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So so this is uh this is probably in the mid sixties ish, right? Would you say time wise? Uh early I would say seventy one or something like that. I think. Okay, gotcha. Okay, cool. 
So I was born in 58, so 68, I've been 10 years old. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. 71, 2, 3, kind of in that area. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Yeah, and those guitars then, like I say, they were all day long, $150. You know, you could buy an old one really mint for 250 but that'd be like rich guy's guitar. And sure. the new one was three-something, you know. It's crazy. I mean, I, I was born a little later. I was born in 66. So by the time I got wise to these things, and I remember my earliest recollections of people going, oh, you should get an old Strat. Well, they're, you know, if you had like a, like 1200 bucks, you right. could buy an old Strat. And 1200 bucks at that time to me, might it might as well have been, you know, the 40 grand that they're, <laughs> or the 25 oh, sure. grand that they're going for now, you know? So, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I had a 68 Telecaster was, was my first like main guitar, but I really wanted a Strat. Um, actually I really just wanted a neck pickup on, on uh, a Fender <laughs> guitar at that point. And yeah. my guitar teacher was selling the 68 Telecaster and I, pl- I plugged it in and, uh, I loved the balance between the neck and the bridge because it was like onboard channel switching, you built your solo up on the neck pickup. And when you went for the jugular, you, you put it back right. in the bridge pickup and away you went. So to me, it was just one of those things where I got to tell you, it's like this, this does everything I needed to do. And I've, you know, I played strats for years and other guitars, but I always came yeah. back to the Telecaster because it's just it's just such a cool blank canvas. You know, there's three sounds and they're all good. <laughs> That's true. That's exactly right. Where if you take any Gibson, as great as they are and easy as they are to play, each one has one sound. Yes. Excels. You know, exactly. it's either got a great neck pickup and a crap bridge pickup. Right. Or it's got the the Jimmy Page bridge pickup and garbage mud in the front. You exactly. Know? Exactly With correct. Telecasters, they pretty come pretty much cover it all, you know. Right. Exactly. Exactly. A yeah. glorious and plus, as I like to say, at the in a post-apocalyptic world, there'll be uh, there'll be cockroaches and telecasters, and the telecasters will be in tune. That's the one. Keith Richards, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, what kind of amps were you playing back then? When you when you were playing in your band, when you got this Esquire, and your was it? Were you pretty much a traditional like Fender amp type of guy too at that point? Did you suss that out, or, or what was the learning curve there? No, I've, I've just been a lucky son of a bitch my whole life. Our our neighbor, who owned a carpet store in our little area in uh, Vancouver, out in the country, uh, he had a '54 Tweed Twin that he'd recovered, oh. and a Framus guitar. It's kind of a L5 looking thing, which was horrible because it had Dobro action and was bad. But anyway, he, he didn't play anymore. And he said, I use the guitar a little bit in the living room. If we have a party. But he said, uh, got this amp here. You think you might want it? I said, I don't know. How loud is it? <laughs> he said, oh, man, that thing is loud. It was a low power twin, but it was okay. Good. But still, probably that's... 45, 50 watts, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I plug in my little Esquire there. Whack, whack. Yeah, that sounds good. No reverb, nothing. Good enough for me. Right. So I got the thing for, I thought it was like 100 bucks or something like that. And I used that for a while. And then I played on Vancouver Island. And there was my first taste of a vintage anything. There was a little tiny music store that had a bunch of old stuff in it. And in the front window, Right off the sidewalk was a tweed basement. Ah. Uh-huh. And low-powered one, it was, uh, the uh, the early one with the two 
rectifiers and two power tubes. Okay. Where the and it was like a fifty-five, so it was a, a single uh, single channel, like just two two inputs. Sure. Where the the one everybody wants is the four input, but it didn't matter to me. I just I saw that amp and I went, Jimmy Bryant. That's what's right. on the album cover. I could sound like that guy. So I wheel and deal. Of course, it only had three speakers in it. One was blown. It was gone. So it only had three speakers in it. So I bought it anyway. And uh, I rent the Radio Shack, and I got me a 10-inch speaker and put it in there. I don't know if the ohms were anywhere near anything. <laughs> you know, had to be probably eight ohm to make it act right. I didn't know. I put it in there. I was like, great. So I used that amp uh, probably for... Uh, about four years, I guess. And oh, then okay. uh, a, a guitar hero of mine in Vancouver, uh, their band was traveling, and the the singer's blackface super reverb fell out of the back of the truck on the road. And the only thing it did was break the tubes, and the cabinet was kind of cocked sideways instead of straight up. So uh, he said, man, I don't know what we're going to do with this amp. I said, well, does it still work? He said, lights up, but no tubes. I said, oh, all right. You want to get rid of it? Yeah. What do you, you want it? I said, yeah, I'll take it. And uh, so that started my fixing and tinkering kind of part of that because I was doing that with bikes and whatever anyway as a kid, you know. And so I wound up getting that super. I don't remember what I paid. It was like 30 bucks or something like that. Uh-huh. But the cabinet was broken. And the board had fallen out and got pinched out when the cabinet got twisted, you know. So I put some L brackets inside and glued in some new brace and drilled the holes and put the board back on and put some tubes in it. I had a a, a, a basement piggyback head that I'd bought. Okay. And it had all the same kind of tubes except the reverb tube. And uh, the little ones weren't broke, just the power tube. So I retubed it, turned it on, and I used that thing probably for... About eight, ten years. Wow. Like that. That was my, I had just a cord and an Esquire and a Super Reverb. And the reverb worked. It broke all the time. The little wires broke off of the transducers inside the tank. So I rewired that with heavier wire. So it didn't sound as good because of the heavier wire, but uh, it worked. You know, so it always stayed working. So I used that till I moved to the States. And then, uh, when I got to the States, I, I knew amps were way cheaper down there. So I stopped in Bellingham, Washington, which is fairly close to the border. And I went to a pawn shop and there was a Session 400 with a JBL in it. Uh, uh, it was like 150 bucks. I thought, that's it, steel guitar amp, clean. So I bought right. that and that was my amp until I got to Nashville and I bought a Blackface Twin down there. Got it. So yeah, it's just about kind of... I mean, I always knew what I liked in amps and sound that I wanted. I wanted to be really clean and clear, like Jimmy Bryant kind of a thing. And and never, you know, I never played in any rock or blues kind of situations that, uh, you know, re- required me to, I'm going to have to have this kind of amp to get right. that job. You know, so it was like none, none of the jobs <laughs> seemed like they were lasted enough or nobody offered them to me that I would have to go out and get a blues guy rig. Right, you know, that kind of thing. So I always had super clean kind of shooting for that fendery. Uh, you know, you run a super on three or four, it's a wonderful thing. And, sure, absolutely. You know, the same with the twin, and then that session there was, you know, it peel skin on right. five, but you know, <laughs> crystal clear. 
But I thought at least I can keep up with the 800 watt bass amp that had come out at that time. The Gamer right. Intruders, right. you know, play with those kind of guys and drummers that want their drums in the monitor. Was like, you know, right. I never understood that. You're sitting on top of them. How come we want more? You know. <laughs> but anyway, so that amp would cut it with those guys, and uh, so I did that. And then when I got to Nashville, I got a a black twin, and. Uh, course i left my basement in storage and my super and uh in canada and then uh once i got to nashville kind of got settled there because i lived there about 11 years so i started wheeling and dealing hustling and buying stuff and repairing and you know i'd buy like refinished stuff and that had robbed parts and restore guitars a little bit and flip stuff that way and make a little bit extra money on the side doing that so i always was into both the guitars and amps but same old thing. I like the old stuff, I guess. I tried a lot of new stuff. Every music store, oh, you got to try this. You're going to love it. I go, yeah, it sounds pretty good in here. It right. A gig. And I'd set mine up beside it always because I knew when the pressure's on, the thing's going to sound like a wet rag and right. coughing and farting and just not clear, you know? Yes, exactly. So, so when oh, you were playing oh. the Tweed Twin and then the Bassman, uh, did you use something else for reverb, or you or you just didn't play with reverb at that time? No, I didn't use anything until I got the super had the reverb in it. Right, gotcha. Isn't that <laughs> wild? How you? When I was younger, I never used reverb, uh, and yeah. and then all of a sudden, at some point, you're like, oh, I guess I like reverb. <laughs> and then oh you can't. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I always liked it too, and I, and I just I never thought about it as far as it's something I need or what is that 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 guy's got that I I'm not getting. You know, because you hear the records of right. Roy Nichols playing, and you go, man, that's the sweetest sound, whatever that is. You know, not right. knowing maybe that it was reverb, but right. or I did, and I, it didn't soak in that that's what I need to, to make it better, you know. It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. So when you moved to Virginia, did you bring everything? You got all your stuff there now, or do you still kind of have stuff in storage, or have you, have you all collected it in the Virginia countryside? Well, I pretty much, uh, I uh, before I moved, I sold a bunch of stuff that I'd been collecting over the years of uh, real pristine stuff that I didn't play. Sure. But I, but I wheeled and deal them for investment purposes, you know. So I uh, unloaded a bunch of that stuff and kept some, you know, still probably too much stuff. But uh, yeah, I moved it all here and I'm, it's all here with me and well, it's all good, you know. Excellent. Well, I was looking forward to seeing you at the Dallas Guitar Show, but needless to say, that yeah. did not transpire. Yeah, I think they tried two or three times to, to bump it ahead and yeah. never did come. Well, maybe next year. Yeah, maybe when, uh, hope hopefully you. when the, the pestilence is mitigated somewhat, there can be uh, another show and it'll be fun. That was fun when we did that, that little Telecaster uh, roundtable, if you yeah. will. It was awesome. I had a blast doing it. I was a nervous wreck, though, because Jimmy <laughs> said, "Yo, you got to run this thing. You call these guys up and tell them what you know what you want to play and all." I'm like, "What? You know, I never did anything like that." So it was a like fish out of water for me, but it was fun. It went good and it went smooth, and figured, well, everybody had a Telecaster in their hand, so it can't go too far bad. You know? Right. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And we'll, it really was. And again, Thank hopefully you. we'll do it. It was, it was an honor to get to play with you. And then we we did that then we did the jam together too that that time too. Yeah. We ended up playing that uh 
The Allman Brothers songs. That's right. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You bet it was. Good, clean fun. And you know what? I I always say that that hotel that they have us stay in, for some reason, has the best damn bacon I've ever had. For some some reason, the bacon there is just unbelievable. So when I think about the Dallas Guitar Show, I think about all these cool musical things, and I'm like, and the bacon. And the (laughs) bacon. Well, you got to have a drawing card. What exactly? It's got, and then, of course, we always try to get down to that uh, the the pecan lounge. Is that the, was that what it's called? The the barbecue place down near Deep Ellum. That place yeah. is unbelievable. Oh, good lord! Yeah, it's a good time there. That's for sure. It's awesome. You know, that's probably a, a probably an interesting uh, scenario that you find yourself in because Austin's got some pretty wicked food, and now you're in. Now you're in Virginia. What's the food? Or, or are you uh, are you a foodie? Do you cook yourself now? Well, we cook at home because of this uh, pandemic. Of course. Sure. Well, yeah, what, of course. But, uh, so, yeah, I got some chicken wings smoking right now. Ah. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, there's nothing like uh, the restaurant thing here is nothing like uh, Austin or Dallas or, you know, any of the big centers. Of course, you know, we don't have anything like uh, there's no Thai food here. Or none gotcha. of that kind of stuff. There's like one Chinese restaurant and lots of burger joints and those kind of fast to go sure. sort of things. And uh, a couple of Mexican places that are not even close. Right. You know, so in that way, we, ah, we just stay home, make our own. My wife's a real good cook. So excellent. And I'm learning to be. And so, yeah, we, we do all kinds. We watch the cooking channel. and get Of course. Ideas. Feel their licks. <laughs> yes, exactly. Same thing here. We've been, uh, we know I got all my kids home now because of the oh. pandemic. So I've got all four kids here and uh, we've been uh, making, taking turns of everyone cooking a meal and they've been pretty yeah. good about it. And so it's been, uh, we've been having some pretty good food. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. With your kids. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, my son, you know, we, we do, we play in the, in the orange room here. We do that a couple times a week. And then Toby, the organ player comes down from, uh, from Minneapolis and we do a live stream uh, every other week. So that's been fun. And then the rest of the kids are just either going to school or working or a combination thereof. And uh, it's, uh, it's, you know what, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, because, you know, my two older kids are in their twenties, you know, under normal circumstances, they'd be long gone. So uh, it's kind of, you know, even though it's, you know, you'd rather not have it under these circumstances, but it's, it's fun to have everyone home. So sure. Of course it is. Yeah. Good, clean fun. As I like to say. Except now we had actually snowed here this morning. Unbelievable. It's just, the weather has been, I mean, it's fall is my favorite time of year, so the trees are beautiful and all that other kind of stuff. But yeah, we had snow this morning. My son was up in uh, northern Wisconsin last week, and they had like six inches of snow. It's It's been crazy. So Wow. Little too early for that. Gets a little chilly in this old house. So, yeah. but you know what? I'm not going to complain. It could be a lot worse. <laughs> That's for sure. You got guitars and amps all around you. That's that that I do. Plenty warm. <laughs> that that I do. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I bought a um, about four years ago now, maybe five years ago. I always wanted an old telly, and um, I never really had all that many vintage guitars because I said it. 
most of the stuff, I mean, I could afford and had the opportunity to get custom shop stuff over the years, but you know, I had a 63 Strat for a while, but never really had an old telly. And I always wanted an old Blackguard and one came into Wildwood. Uh, It was a, a, uh, I think the brother of a guy that died and had a bunch of stuff. He collected all kinds of stuff, not just guitars, but so he brought in some stuff and he had this old uh, 53 Telecaster and and I played it a couple times and you know there was I, I really really liked it but I thought you know what I I need a modern guitar with modern radius and bigger I'm just used to it you know I it would just be kind of weird for me to buy this old guitar when it would I really wouldn't use it as much as my other stuff and then I remember uh, um, right around that time, this this guy that we that I'd known forever, we used to actually rehearse at his house years ago, and I hadn't seen him for years. And then, he, and then of all things, he became a Bengal cat breeder and seller, and we ended up buying a couple of cats from this guy. So he's so if, wow. if you need a cat guy, I got one. Yeah. Anyway, so he decided to spend all this money that he's making from these cats on buying old guitars. So he bought a. Uh, like a pristine 59 um, Strat. And he, I think he bought it from Norm's and, uh, you know, Maple Neck one. And yeah. um, and he's like, hey, I just want you to play it. Just take it and play it. I've got it insured. Just have a good time. Wow. So I'm like, well, okay, what the hell? So I I used it for a while and I had a three-way toggle switch. And uh, and I was interested. It's like, well, how's this, how's this going to be in terms of, because, you know, again, I like, you know, the modern uh necks and so on and so forth in terms of radius and taller frets and all that kind of stuff but within short order it's like oh no no this works just fine (laughs) and it started to remind me of my old 68 tally which of course i had no problem playing so then as soon as that got in my head i thought oh that telly would totally work so then i went back out to wildwood and you know one thing i know i harvested a kidney did whatever i needed to do so sold a bunch of other stuff i ended up getting this guitar and what's interesting is it's not like my 68 telly where the, the neck pickup uh, was is really such a great match for the bridge. The neck pickup's a, a little wimpier, but man, it sounds so good. I don't want to mess with it. And it's really yeah. microphonic. Yeah. So the bridge pickup sounds great, but if I if I play it with an amp or if I add any heat whatsoever, that neck pickup just goes, but it's one of those things where it sounds so good clean I don't want them. And then people are like, well, take the cover off. I was like, I don't want to take the cover off. I want it to look like a Telecaster. You know what I mean? You bet. So it's just one of those things where I, and then people are like, well, you know, you could have it rewound or you could at least have it dipped. And, you know, and so I I haven't done anything yet because I just don't want to mess mess with it. But um, to me, that's why you got all those other ones there. Exactly. You know, I mean, and the same for me when I started collecting them and, really getting into them, it was the same kind of thing. I would get one that had a crappy neck pickup, but boy, the bridge one was just magic. But I wouldn't change them. It was like, no, you know, on this kind of gig, I'll use this one. On this kind of gig, I'll use that one. And, you know, if it's a quiet gig where I don't need feedback, I'll use the one with the wimpy neck pickup because it sounds so clear and and jangly. Yes. quiet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just need so, more guitars so you have more variances. Well, that's it. You know, I bring I bring it out to gigs and I use it a couple times a night on tunes where I don't, you know, turn it up that much and it right. sounds it sounds glorious. But yeah. that neck pickup, it's got this, 
It's got this squishy, almost arch toppy thing. It sounds yeah. so good that I do not want to mess with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hear you. And then there's the tone controls on those old tellies, too. They do the wah better than anything. They yeah. Just, <laughs> wah, it just sounds so good. Yeah, they're so simple and so great. <sighs> I'll tell you what, Leo got it right, doggone it. You know, I will say that I, I played, um, Wildwood had sent me a couple of these um, uh, broadcaster, custom shop broadcaster reissues, and they and it's a little different in terms of, you know, the three-way switch. Uh, they kind of did a, a, a nod to the original where the tone control is actually a blend for the two pickups, yeah. uh, but the... The all the way to the extreme left of the toggle switch, which is, of course, is usually the neck pickup that sounds like it's you know all the tone is rolled off. Right. Well, they didn't do that because they figured no one really uses that anymore. But they did yeah. roll off a bit, like a I guess it's like a 10k you know buffer they put on there or whatever. Yeah. Um. So it sounds a little squishier and not as bright. And that's the version of the neck pickup that you blend with the bridge with the tone control. That guitar sounds really good that's i've really been tempted to get like uh you know the, the relic thing i get but I, I would rather have like the journeyman relic so it just looks a little broken in and not like ravaged by a farm animal or by right. <laughs> by some kind of predator uh but that's that did you have you ever had an, like an old broadcaster or any of that kind of stuff have you ever messed with one, one of the the originals Oh yeah, yeah i've had a couple of broadcasters and uh, no casters and over the years and uh and did they I, have that blend switch on them well the the no caster that i played for years and years had been rewired when i got it because they okay. changed the box in it so they gutted the the control panel okay. and uh, made it just regular switch so you had neck both and bridge right. and a master tone so that guitar that i played was like that from the get-go so i never used the blend but uh just I played one of those. I had a 51 that I'd played for a long, long time. Awesome. But I just had a, a Nacho Banos. You know him? No. He's a fellow in Valencia, Spain. He wrote the Blackguard book. Okay, okay. Well, he's building relic kind of guitars, and most of them are beat to death. They look like they've been in a fire. The neck looks like a rotten banana. You know, <laughs> it's all black and funky. <laughs> <laughs> and, Anyway, I got one of his first ones, and it's like that. It looks like it's been in a fire almost, you know. Right. And I just had to make me a, a new one, and I said, I want a new old stock, 55. Of course, everything he makes is black guards only. So okay. I got a white guard, and the color is more like a 55 on the blonde side of butterscotch, you know. But it, it's a brand new, looks like, if you look at it, it looks like a brand new, 55 that was never played it's yellowed a little bit you know the next kind of tinted but there's no wear on it and uh it's not like uh you know sanded off on the end of the fingerboard or right just like a brand new guitar and man it is awesome for a new one and it's really really faithful to the 55 neck shape and all that and i got a light body and all of his own pickups he makes everything himself the knobs uh the bridge pans all that stuff and, they sound uh, good huh it's just, oh it's same deal it's just a wonderful 
wow, this was a, must've been made on a Wednesday, you know? <laughs> <laughs> now, do you like the bigger necks or are you, are you kind of, I, yeah. I always like to say, I like all the different neck profiles, but like Bill Kirchin's neck on his guitar, that thing's the hugest neck I've ever played, which is glorious. But do you like that stuff too? Or do you like a smaller neck? No, I like the big ones. I, if I order something custom made, I always want an inch and three quarter nuts, like a strat as opposed to a telly. Got it. And then I like, I don't mind like, uh, like Kirchens is one inch at the, at the nut. And I like like a 097 kind of in Got real it. close to one inch and then one inch or better at the 12 fret. I don't mind that at all. Uh, I, my opinion for me is they ring better. Right. Of course, his one doesn't have a truss rod, so it rings like a piano anyway, like a designing right. rod. He calls it his John Holmes model. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, that's a Pine Telecaster Rick Rick Kelly made in New York. You're right, exactly. It's out of old like wood from a bar. Wasn't it something like that? Did I hear that correctly? I think the body wood is from the Chelsea Hotel or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, then yeah. The, and the neck, I don't know if the wood is from there too, but it's a, a pine neck, which you never hear of or see either. Ah. But that's why it's so big, so that they didn't put a truss rod in. That way it won't warp because it's too big. Got it. If they'd made a small one, it, chances are it would warp, you know. Oh, but that thing's straight as a die and plays great and rings like a piano because there's no truss rod. Right. Uh, with a hole in it, you know, to kill the ringing of the neck. Crazy. So you guys going to still, once Pestilence passed, you guys going to do some stuff together again? Well, I hope so. Of course, he's super scared because he's even older than me. And, ah. Uh, pre-existing stuff. So he's like, nah, I'm not going anywhere for a while. Yeah, I don't blame him. Well, if it, you know, that may be the end of it. I don't know. But uh, I hope not. I love him. I love his plan. And he's like, Funny guy. He's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, Nickelbot Crane, except he plays great. Yeah. You know? <laughs> He's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. It's great yeah, to hear all these stories. Thank you. I'm a big fan of your plan, too, mister. I think you're wonderful. Oh, well, thank you very much. Coming from you, man, that's a it's a huge compliment, and I thank you. Well, I hope we can do some planning. I, I hope so too. Hopefully, when this pestilence is passed, that seems to be my favorite line. When the pestilence is passed. Oh, Lord. Well, listen, you take care of yourself out there, and I look forward to seeing you hopefully sooner than later. And thanks again for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Greg. All right, you take care of yourself. Bye bye. See you. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon. 